So as you take your place this morning and settle in for the sermon, I want you to do something else. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I want your imagination, and I don't know about you, but for me it's easier to imagine if I close my eyes. I want you to try to recall the thickest fog you've ever encountered. I remember driving on a winding mountain road where we could see nothing but the yellow line to guide us. What's the thickest fog you've encountered? The fastest motion you've witnessed, I guess mine would be a bolt of lightning, but what have you seen that just was so fast? The brightest light you've seen, even though it's 93 million miles away, I guess it'd be for me the sun, especially when you're in Hawaii lying on the beach and you're trying to read, but what's the brightest light you have seen? The highest height you've climbed or maybe seen. I grew up not far from the world's tallest mountain in Pakistan, K2. The second tallest, sorry. The highest height you've climbed or seen. How about the greatest wealth you've ever contacted in person? I think of the Biltmore House, but where have you like, oh my goodness, this is a lot of wealth concentrated in one place. The greatest power you've seen. I had to go to TV like the Saturn V rocket lifting off from Cape Canaveral. But what, what, what do you think of when you think of great power? The purest beauty your eyes have seen. Linda and I will never forget that first winter snowfall at Murin in Switzerland up in the Swiss Alps for just pure beauty. How about the most terrifying event you have experienced. And I guess, again, if TV counts 9-11, watching those planes go over and over into the Twin Towers on replays, terrifying. And finally, the most breathtaking spectacle. Where have you been where you just literally had no words? For me, what came to mind was the sunrise at Haleakala on uh, the volcano on Maui. But what, what just took your breath away? Okay, so you can open your eyes because I don't want you going to sleep. If you could bundle all of that into one experience, you would come close to the way the Old Testament describes the physical display of the glory of God. It's high and it's bright and it's fast and it's beautiful and it's terrifying and it's, it's uh, awe-inspiring. So you have to pull all that together. That's what the Old Testament means by the glory of God. So everything else that we can imagine is just a shadow of what's inexpressible, indescribable, incomparable, but some of those images at least get you going in the right direction. In Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, God's glory departs from the temple of God. In order to understand the significance of that event, I need you to go with me to the the word glory and the way the Old Testament uh, presents it to us. So the first time we find the word glory at all is not in the book of Genesis. It's in the book of Exodus. 
And the first time the word glory appears in the Bible is when the children of Israel are at the Red Sea. And God tells to Moses, God says to Moses, Pharaoh has changed his mind and he's coming at you with chariots and soldiers. And uh, here you are at the edge of the Red Sea. And then God says to Moses, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. Whenever a word appears for the first time in the Bible, that's pretty significant. And you know the story. It wasn't just that Pharaoh and his army drowned in the Red Sea. It was that God put a pillar of fire and cloud between the Egyptians and the Israelites, and they did see that glory of God, that radiant light. Glory becomes a theme for the Israelites all the way through their wilderness wanderings. Manna on the desert floor displays God's glory, according to Exodus 16. Fire on Mount Sinai is the glory of Yahweh. Moses is up on the mountain and asks to see God's glory, and God passes in front of him. When the tabernacle is set up, that tent of worship, the scripture says the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So again, this is motion, it's light, radiance, it's cloud, it's like something is going on here that's terrifying. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this same radiant cloud apparently appeared regularly at the tent of meeting, including when the rebels opposed Moses, and it stayed at the tent of the meeting except when the children of Israel were supposed to move, and the cloud would lift and it would move on. So from that time on, the glory was always associated with the Ark of the Covenant, That's where the Ten Commandments were kept and where uh, Aaron's rod was kept and where a jar of manna was kept. So this symbolizes the presence and power of God. And whenever the ark was there, the glory of God was there. It wasn't always with radiant light, but there were cherubim that were on either side of the ark. And this was symbolic of God's powerful presence whenever the ark was there. And so some years later, when uh, the... The ark was still in the tabernacle, but the Philistines came and they won the battle and they stole the ark of the covenant. The priest slash judge Eli, uh, the shock of that killed him like on the spot because the glory of God was taken, he died. And when, uh, his, when that happened, his daughter-in-law also went into labor prematurely, gave birth to a son, and she called the son Ichabod, which means no glory. Like, glory's gone. Then when Solomon, they got, they got the ark back, but when Solomon built the permanent temple that would be, that would be the home to the ark of the covenant, there was a... Um, There was a huge ceremony. We're talking about thousands of animal sacrifices and pageantry and harps and trumpets and choirs. But only when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple on that day do we read that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. All of this is background for how the Old Testament sees God's glory. When you see the Ark of the Covenant, whether or not the radiant light is there at the moment, that means God is there. God is present. The power of God is right there. His very, his very presence is right there when you see the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God. So all that then leads us into the Psalms, where the Psalms use the word glory a lot. It's always God's glory on display, even if it's in nature. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies show His handiwork. 
Glory becomes a verb in the Psalms. It's a command, not only to Israel, but to the nations around. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. The the inference is, if the nations really want to see the glory of the one true God, they better come here to Jerusalem. Because the one place identified with the physical display of the glory of God is that ark in the Holy of Holies, within the temple, on the temple mount in Jerusalem. That's where the glory of God is. So it's not like the cloud is always there, lighting up the skies if it's the Bank of America Stadium or whatever. The temple itself represents God's presence and his unique relationship with Israel. The temple is about the history of God's covenant, of his presence, of his promises. If you want to experience God's glory, go to the temple. Mingle with the worshiping mobs. Bring an offering. Smell the burnt uh, offerings when you get there. Gaze at the, uh, the, the incredible architecture that's in front of you. Remember the promises to Noah and Moses and especially to David and Solomon. And so the psalmist writes, I have seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Psalm 96.8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. For much of the Old Testament, for a millennium in fact, this physical display of God's glory is confined to one place. It's physically located inside the Holy of Holies on the Temple Mount. If you think you need God, if you think you've drifted away from God, if you think you've disobeyed God, if God doesn't seem as close to you as he seems as he used to be, then you go to the temple. That's where you find the presence of God because that's where you find the glory of God. And all of that is critical background for what happens in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11. Ezekiel is not the only prophet who speaks about the glory of God, but he is the most visual and dramatic. If Ezekiel were alive today, he'd be the master of PowerPoint, of theater, of YouTube. Ezekiel could have limited himself to the other images of the glory of God. He could have talked about the cloud, um, and he could have talked about fire and light. All of those would have brought to mind what other people thought of as the glory of God. Instead, Ezekiel, with his creativity inspired by the Holy Spirit, use a whole, uses a whole bunch of other images that are still familiar ideas and words, but Ezekiel uses them to, to really sort of uh, ramp up your wonder at the glory of God. Ezekiel talks about uh, wings and eyes and wheels and rainbows and cattle and birds and lions and faces and thrones. So Ezekiel's vision of God's glory will never leave you with the presumption that you get God. There's mystery here. His visions leave you breathless and also puzzled. In Ezekiel chapter 1, at the end of this vision, Ezekiel falls flat on his face. Why? Because he has seen the glory of God. He says, I saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And readers usually find his visions confusing at first, as did I. But it's really not all that complicated. What Ezekiel sees is motion and light and power and cloud. And so what he sees with these intersecting wheels is that they can go anywhere uh, instantaneously. What he sees with these glorious creatures that there are different faces that represent all of creation and God is there in all of it and over all of it. This is the glory of God. 
So there are these gyroscopes that seem to spin in every direction. And the point of all of it, with the eyes covering the creatures and the wheels, is the omniscience of God. God sees everything in the omnipresence of God. He doesn't have to wait to be taken somewhere like God is everywhere. So Ezekiel has this almost IMAX theater, Dolby sound experience of not only light but sound. He hears things like, that sound like Niagara Falls or an army on the march. No wonder Ezekiel falls down and worships in chapter 1. And now you know it's why it's such a weighty event when the glory of God departs from the temple. But Ezekiel's not just going to say that. And then the glory of God left the temple. Ezekiel is going to do it in some really dramatic way, and that's what he does. And so the sequence begins in chapter 8. Ezekiel is sitting with the elders. They are in Babylon, so they're 700 miles away from Jerusalem, but these are some of the people that were in this first wave of exiles that Ezekiel had joined. And as is typical of Ezekiel, he even dates the experience. When he says it was the sixth year, the sixth month, the fifth day, some scholars say we can actually date that event. It was 2,610 years ago this coming Tuesday. It was September the 17th of 592 B.C. Ezekiel wants you to get this. This really happened to me at a moment in history. And what happens on that day while Ezekiel is sitting with the elders in exile is that the Spirit comes and grabs him by the hair. That didn't work very well with me. There's not much to grab up there. But he grabs him by the hair and he lifts him up and teleports him to Jerusalem where there's still a temple and there's still sacrifices Ezekiel had been raised by a priest. He knows what it's supposed to be like when he visits the temple with the sacrificial system. So then in chapter 9, Ezekiel is now in vision in Jerusalem, and he sees six assassins, executioners, and one guy dressed in linen who has what he calls a writing kit. I'm just going to call it a sharpie, all right? So six people with uh, lethal weapons and one guy with a sharpie. So as Ezekiel sees what's happening in Jerusalem, he watches the six executioners go out and slaughter the idolaters unless the guy with the sharpie marks on them that they are repentant and faithful. So this is, again, a vision like God is going to execute justice on this idolatrous city, but he's going to spare some who are a faithful remnant, because what Ezekiel sees there must have shocked and sickened him when he gets to the temple. He sees images of animals being worshipped that are carved there into the temple walls. He sees a sensual goddess named Tammuz. He sees people bowing to the sun god. So for generations, the problem had been that people would worship their idols, but they would do it somewhere else. Now they've brought it right into the temple, right into the city. And this is why Ezekiel now notes that the glory of God moves. So I actually don't want you to think of this sanctuary as the temple of God in this formal sense, but if for a moment I can have your imagination, it's as if the Ark of the Covenant is up here at the altar, and Ezekiel sees it rise from the Holy of Holies, lift up, accompanied by these cherubim and the whirling wheels, and it goes out to the threshold of the temple, back out basically to the narthex. So the glory of God has left the place where it's been, uh, at least symbolically, if not literally, for a thousand years, and it moves out to the threshold of the temple in chapter 9. Then in chapter 10, we see Ezekiel's vision of chapter 1 
repeated with a couple of significant differences. For one, the living creatures of chapter 1 are now for the first time called cherubim, and one of them, it's indicated, has the face of a cherubim. So we've got this radiant cloud, but now we see these, um, these creatures described as cherubim. We first meet cherubim in the Garden of Eden, where they are protecting the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned. Cherubim were embroidered on the temple curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And cherubim were also, as I said earlier, placed on top of the ark. So cherubim are are living creatures. They are angelic beings of some kind, but they are there symbolically to represent the power and the protection of God. So then in chapter 11... Uh, excuse me, in chapter 10 then, the glory of God accompanied by the whirling wheels and the cherubim moves from the threshold of the temple out to the eastern gate. So Jerusalem uh, tends to have four gates, the most prominent gates, and the eastern gate is the one that traditionally uh, is the entry point, particularly for Messiah. In fact, if you go to Israel now, hey, we're having a little meeting after church today if you want to go to Israel. That's in your bulletin as well. But if you go to Israel, uh, you will notice that in front of the eastern gate, the Muslims have actually put graves there because they believe that Messiah would never trample on graves, and therefore we're going to keep Messiah, your Messiah, from entering into the city. But the eastern gate is where Jesus did come in on, the, uh, on Palm Sunday, and so this is the point of entry. And now we have the glory of God moving out of the temple area, to the edge of the temple mount, and then in chapter 11, Ezekiel says that, with, uh, that accompanied by the cherubim and the wheels as royal honor guards, this brilliant cloud of God's glory, actually the very presence of God, rises from the edge of the temple mount and moves over to what we now know as the Mount of Olives. The glory of God has departed the temple in Ezekiel chapter 11. And it never came back. Not in that physical sense of the Ark of the Covenant and this radiant cloud. It never came back. The people of Israel were allowed to return after the exile and rebuild the temple, but not only the glory of God wasn't there spiritually, it wasn't there physically as well. And Haggai the prophet says, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you? Does it not seem like nothing? There's no glory there. And even when Herod came along a couple of centuries later and expanded the Temple Mount and built the temple probably more glorious than even Solomon's temple, there's no record in literature inside the Bible or outside that the glory of God ever shone again in that place. So will it never, ever return to the temple? Ezekiel loves that you want to know the answer to that question, and you have to wait till later in his book to find out. So what do we do with this? We're New Testament people, right? So um, if you come here very often, you know that my preferred preaching style is to stick to the text. I've already sort of broken that pattern by giving you a survey of the glory of God in the Old Testament. Now I want to look at the New Testament. Let me tell you why. 
If I stick to just the story in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, um, you might hear a sermon that sounds like this. You need to be careful as an individual Christian or as a church or as a denomination or as a nation because the glory of God, even though you have it now, is not permanent with you. In fact, many people would say that God's glory has departed America. And I'm going to say we never had it, not in the biblical sense. Glory biblically is not affluence or success or prosperity or, in a sense, it's not even godliness. Glory is the visible, physical presence where you can meet God, where you can see God. And America's never been the place of glory in that biblical sense. So I've titled my sermons, this, the, my series of sermons in Ezekiel, This God is Our God. What does it mean to us as New Testament people to talk about the glory of God that was so central to the temple and departed the temple in Ezekiel? When we look at the New Testament, we, uh, we find three significant ways in which the New Testament speaks of the glory of God. It's still there, but it's different. First, the glory of God is seen fully, finally, and unalterably in Jesus Christ. So here are some verses from the New Testament that you probably know well. On the night of Jesus' birth, the glory of God shone around the shepherds, and the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So we already know that the appearance of Jesus is the return of the glory of God, but it's very hidden and veiled. You don't expect to find the glory of God in a manger, in a cave in Bethlehem with no light shining. Nothing like that happened in that cave that night. So for most of Jesus' life, the glory was hidden. There were a few moments where some people got to see it or hear it at his baptism And on a few other occasions, there was a voice that proclaimed, this is my son. That's the glory of God. John says that Jesus revealed his glory when he turned the water into wine or with his other sign miracles. Then you fast forward to Palm Sunday where the crowds, as Jesus came back in through that eastern gate, the same one where the glory of God had departed, the crowd shouted, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they were right about the who, but not about the when Jesus would reveal his glory. The most visible and memorable display of the glory of God in Jesus' earthly life happened to only three people when Peter, James, and John were able to see a physical manifestation of light radiating from within Jesus and through his clothes and in his face so that they could experience the glory of God. But it was only briefly that they saw him, and only those three. John, more than the other three Gospels, speaks of the glory of God in and through Jesus in his earthly life. You may think that the pinnacle of the glory in Jesus is what? His resurrection, right? John actually ties the word glory more to his death than he does to his resurrection. That is how God is glorified in Jesus by his death for our sins and his resurrection. But John is the one who makes this direct statement about Jesus' glory. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us, and we have seen his what? His glory. The glory of the the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The writer of Hebrews would later add, the Son is the radiance of, 
of God's glory. There's that light word, the exact representation of his being. So listen, the reason that the glory of God was removed from the temple so dramatically in the book of Ezekiel was to prepare us for the coming of Jesus and to remind us that when we want to meet God, we never again have to go to a place, to a temple. The only way, the proper way, the right way, the biblical way to refer to the glory of God on earth after Ezekiel chapter 11 is in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting that to use the word glory in other ways is somehow profane or blasphemous. Sometimes we talk about a a king or a queen in their glory or a nation or a battle. This is the glory of the battle or even an athletic feat. It's fine to use the word glory in those ways as long as we understand what we're doing. And what we're doing when we use the the word glory for anything else is we're kind of comparing the light on our flashlight on our phone and setting it beside the sun and saying, it's the same thing. It's all light. So yes, in a sense, it's all glory, but every other use of glory, even for a powerful and influential nation, is only a flicker of light compared to the glory of Jesus, which I'm comparing to the sun. So, uh, When you use the word glory, I kind of wish that we all would limit it to the use of Jesus or God, but it's okay because the Bible itself occasionally uses the word glory in other ways. But the bottom line is that 1 Peter 1.24 reminds us all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. So now, if you want to meet God... If you want to experience God, if you're feeling far away from God, if you think your sins need to be forgiven, and you want to experience the glory of God, you don't go to a physical temple, you go to Jesus. That's what the Bible is presenting for us. His is the majesty and the authority and the mystery and the holiness and the power, the very presence of God. If you need God, go to Jesus. That's the way the New Testament presents him. Second way the New Testament talks about glory It's future glory. And that begins with Jesus. Even though he was the glory of God, is the glory of God in human flesh, he did not display it visibly very often. And Jesus did say repeatedly that he would return in his Father's glory with the angels, that he would sit on his glorious throne, that he would come in a cloud with power and great glory, which the Jews understood to mean that he was giving himself equality with God. So glory describes where Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father, seated there in power and with his presence, and that's where he's going to bring his people. So Stephen is about to be buried under an avalanche of stones in Acts chapter 7, and it says he looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God. Paul says our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. The writer of Hebrews says that God is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That's our home. That's our destination. Jesus is already there. That's where our loved ones are who have left our earthly presence in Christ and are now with the Lord in his glory. 
In Revelation 5.13, simply, the book of Revelation says, you know what our job is right now? It's to give him glory. So to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Glory is hidden from us now, but we will share in Jesus' glory at his second coming and for eternity. There's a third way that the New Testament uses glory. And given everything else that I've said about glory, this one's kind of surprising to me, that you and I, in Christ, display the glory of God. Jesus said, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He told the disciples the night before he died, this is to my Father's glory that you should bear much fruit. Paul says we are right now in Christ being transformed, ever increasing into his image, excuse me, into his image with ever increasing glory. And he tells the Colossians, Christ in you is the hope of glory. So that's the future, but it's also that right now, as you experience and live out the glory of God, you have your hope that there will be a final and full glory. So the real application of this sermon on the glory of God departing from Ezekiel is not that you should be terrified that somehow God is, God's glory is going to leave you or that he's going to leave your people or the church or the nation or whatever. That's not the point of it. The point of this sermon, the application of it, is what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, after he has been dealing with what for them was a very complicated issue where Christians disagreed, can we eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Not a big deal for you and me, huge deal at Corinth. And Paul concludes his argument by simply saying, whatever you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So sometimes Christians ask, Christians ask questions like, you know, what would Jesus do? Paul's question is, what would give glory to God? What would let his light, his radiance, his power, his presence shine into the world around me? If I run every decision I make as much as humanly possible through that grid, I've come, I've come somewhere close to how the New Testament uses this idea of glory. Your behavior and mine will not alter the glory of God. It doesn't dim God's glory because we do something that dishonors him. God has glory, Jesus is glory, and all the universe will ultimately display his majesty and power and light and holiness and presence and omniscience and beauty. Meanwhile, until Jesus comes, while that glory is hidden from the world around us, how you live as a believer in Jesus Christ is actually the best display of the glory of God to those around you. When you pray, when you sing, when you serve, when you give, when you work for justice, when you forgive someone as Christ forgave you, when you share the gospel with grace, when you live a holy life devoted to Jesus with ever-increasing glory, you represent his presence and power in this world. Let us pray. I'd like to invite you now to take your bulletin as we go into prayer because there is a confession of sin that is printed there in your bulletin as a response to this message. And then I'd like to ask you to spend a moment in silent confession 
following the confession in unison. This is a prayer we're offering each week in our study of Ezekiel as he convicts us of our own uh, need for repentance. Let us pray together. Holy and heavenly Father, I hear the words obstinate, stubborn, and rebellious. I confess they describe my heart, my words, and my actions the way you see them. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you. You are my only hope. By your life, death, and resurrection, I am known, loved, and forgiven. Holy Spirit, pierce my soul with my own unworthiness and open my eyes to my sins. Give me freedom to own my guilt and thus embrace your salvation. Amen. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wondrous compassion and purity. Oh, thou spirit divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Let the fruit of the Spirit be seen in me. Grant me grace all sufficient that I may be true and faithful each day, every step of the way, till the glory of Jesus is seen in me. Let us pray as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand as we affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, 
the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen.